Hi, I'm Rami. And I'm Shannon, and this is Workplace Hugs, where we talk about interesting things we've read to help all of us expand our life toolkit with a whole bunch of empathy, but without a whole new degree. This week, Rami and I are doing one of the rare things that we've only done one other time in the podcast episode. We are talking about a book that we have both read, which is Range, all about why generalists triumph in a specialized world. But I made Rami write the notes on this one. Here's, here's what I like about this book is I saw this book and I was like, oh, this book looks really interesting. Mm-hmm. And as Shannon and I were talking about future episodes, Shannon was like, I'm reading this book and I am not into it. Yeah, It's got this like weird analogy at the beginning, like not here for it. Yep. And I was like, oh, that's a book I really want to read. Yes. So I'm going to read it. So I was like reading it. And I was like, Shannon, I really like this book. I really like this book. And you're like, okay, I'm going to finish this book. And then at the end, you're like, yeah, I really like the back half of that book. Like, it got me. Yes. I think it was just the front half was, like, not there for you. No, it wasn't. Because he talks about, like, analogies forever and ever and ever, which we're going to talk about today a little bit yes. on maybe why he does that. So, Rami, tell us tell us what, what you think about this book. What did you take away? What's the summary? So, I think we both like the book. I think the point of this book is... He kind of goes out of his way, David uh, Epstein. So the book is Range, Why Journalists Triumph in a Specialized World. It really goes out of its way to show examples of successful generalists and really, really to make the point that specialization is good and it's helpful, but that the people who really push things forward are typically generalists who have tertiary knowledge in a lot of fields and somehow apply that to push a different field forward. Yes. So the first example, and and this is maybe where Shannon was not super (laughs) on board, was the idea of the Roger Federer versus the Tiger Woods example. Yes. So Tiger Woods was a early specializer in that they said that by the age before like he could walk three or something that he was on yeah. TV already swinging a golf club. Yeah. But before he could walk the, he had a golf club and was like swinging and doing stuff. And so his dad had like basically said, you're going to be a golfer. We're going to specialize early and you're going to be amazing. Um, and then he did end up being amazing. Right. So then a lot of people go, Oh, okay. That's exactly how you do it. Like you get them early and you train them. And he goes through another example of this family who makes these, um, three daughter chess prodigies and they just like wake up, they play chess all day or something. They might go to school, but then they like, were basically just like, just like tiger. Like that's what they did with all their free time. And they ended up being grandmasters or something mm-hmm. like they were very good like excellent chess chess people at the end of their um tutelage yes. similar to tiger the foil to that is the roger federer who oddly enough his mom was a tennis teacher oh was which she? i thought I was so weird yeah and she was like i didn't want to force him to play tennis so they just like let him play every sport and then he found that he really enjoyed tennis and was good at it. Mm -hmm. And so he started to invest his time into it and then started to make money and do all these things. Yeah. And, and also similar to Tiger Woods, like was at the top of his field at one point in terms of being the best, but didn't start out that way and didn't even start really focusing. I think they said until he was like 12 or something. Yeah. Or later, I think like some of the examples, some of that, the examples that they gave on like people who maybe played a bunch of sports, even in college, and then specialized when they were professionally. 
Yeah. So a uh, a Minnesota example is Joe Maurer, right? He got drafted for football. Oh, did he? I know nothing yeah, and about sports. This baseball. is why the book was like, come on, already in the first. Okay, so the writer had worked for Sports Illustrated, did a lot of work in sports. Yeah. So there's there's some sports analogies, but I wouldn't say it's a majority of sports analogies. No, he finally gets into music, which which is a land where I can play a little bit more and give so then the next example he goes into is music right is what shannon's talking about so he says jazz and classical musicians are very unique breeds because if you start out as a jazz musician which jazz music is very difficult it it doesn't it doesn't go by just go by the book but there is it's basically just like how do you improvise and and follow the others and play off other people. Mm-hmm. It's not you reading sheet music and, and just hitting the notes the right way that you're supposed to. Where classical is. Classical, you learn how to do it. There's rigor to it. There is a black and white way of doing classical music correctly. Yep. And so if you're a classical musician, the point that he makes is you've now specialized in what is a very black and white field. It's very hard for classical musicians to shift into freeform jazz could they play jazz that's written out yes they'd probably kill like very specific jazz standards yeah but could they play jazz with other jazz musicians probably not like they would struggle to do that because that's not where their skill set has been honed in and specialized in where a jazz musician who's learned by playing lots of different things how to be really good at jazz could very easily play classical they might be bored by playing classical music yeah but they can very easily shift into being a classical musician in a way that isn't as much of a shift for them to be the top of that field yes because they've had to have range in their imagination you know literally there's like eight bar sections in jazz music where it's just like and here is where you improvise (laughs) and uh, yeah a classically trained musician would not know what to do with that They just look at it and wait for the eight bars to be done and go on their way. (laughs) Yeah. So really, that's where the book is at. He um, goes through a lot of examples and, and really just keeps hitting on why having range, why being a generalist has allowed people to to really be the jazz musician who can play classical. Mm-hmm. As opposed to specialists who are the classicals who can't do anything in that eight bar freeform section. Yeah. Before we go into the three big points or themes you want us to take away from this book, Rami, can we talk a little bit about like our work experiences? I'm gonna I'm yes. gonna improvise here a little bit. I like this. Because <laughs> um, I was thinking about how so Rami and I both worked at Target. That's where we met, and Target Corporate. And I think my perception at Target at the time that we were there was that when we first started out, it was like a generalist culture. They wanted you to like experiment and be in a lot of different things. But towards the end of, of my time there, it felt like they were moving towards specialization. They're like, no, 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 no. Like we want you to like pick your lane. Are you supply chain? Great. Go be an expert in supply chain. What's your take on that? I think you're right. I think what's interesting is it used to feel, at least when we started, it felt like the Wild West, right? Like, yes. I'm going to start out in this role, and I could end up anywhere. The world is Literally my oyster. Anywhere, yes. Right? I, I and, can do a lot of different things. And as we were leaving, and we'd already passed a lot of the 
like early specialization. So we couldn't have ever gone down the tiger path. Uh-huh. But it feels like the tiger path is what they were shifting into as we were getting out of there. Yeah. Is, no, we don't want the Federers who do these things and then find out what they like late in the game. Mm-hmm. We want the people who decide early and then force them down that path because we're going to get the most hyper-specialized person. And do you think that's the way f- that you're seeing like across the business industry? I know that you work particularly in like startup. And so you have like a different experience in that sense of what is required in a startup. But like, if you think more broadly than startup land. I think what it's really interesting. It really depends. I think on the leadership, I've always been really lucky and I've always pushed for a lot of varying backgrounds Mm -hmm. because in the same way that, and we'll get into this with analogical thinking is like, you want based on what he says in this book, you want a lot of different people to be the ones pushing it forward, yep. um, coming from different places to help help you move forward. Mm-hmm. Where I think, I think it really depends on the industry, right? Like I, I, I work with a manufacturer mm-hmm. and they're getting very, very specialized. Like they're getting people from the same industry, they're hiring them and they're kind of grooming them through this company. Yeah, which is, I think, can be a good thing. I also, I personally always see specialization as a bad thing until you've gotten to the point where you want to specialize. And so to do that the same way that we are kind of experiencing Target from the beginning all the way through is, I think, uh, a hindrance in the same way that I think if Roger Federer had been forced to play tennis earlier, I don't think he would have ended up being the tennis star that he was. Yeah. I think about it too, like, a, and uh, I gotta look up the difference between an analogy and a metaphor, because to me, those two things are synonymous, but I don't think that they really are. I think it's also uh, similar to liberal arts education and the advocacy. Like, I'm a huge proponent of getting a liberal arts education because you have to learn, like, a little bit of a lot of different things. And I think it helps to have those people who can be the connectors of the specialists, you know, because if we just had a bunch of specialists, they don't always know how to talk to each other. My husband jokes all the time that he, his biggest skill in the corporate environment is that he's a translator. He can speak tech, he can speak business and he can speak operations. And those three things like help him translate between the people who only specialize in one of those fields. So that's a little bit of a, tangent that I wanted to go down to just explore like where do we think the direction is because I would say even sorry honey if you're listening but I would say even Nate feels pressure to pick a specialty you know my husband to say like I've got to pick tech business or ops even though it is so clear to see the value that he brings to having all that experience totally to be able to navigate across those waters that he's got to navigate to make his team successful in the company that he works for so anyways, let, let's get into the three big points or themes of this book. But Rami. hold on, let's hit that one more time, because yeah. I think at the end of the day, when you get to a higher level, yep. I think they want you to have all those experiences, right? I you think of the leaders and they go, look, this person did this and this person did this. Like, look how varied their background is. But then they want to force you down a path and not let you get those experiences. I would agree that like, I think it's like, yes, exactly. They're like, okay, be a specialist. But then once you get to that point where you're approaching VP, then you need to pick which lane you are going to be VP in, (laughs) you know, and it's not always appealing, I think, to people who operate in more of a generalist mentality. 
And of course, well, and I, you and I are going to advocate for the generalist mentality. You know, if you think about like what you majored in versus what you do for a living now. And if you look at like, I'm a double major in music and business. Like what the, what the heck is that? <laughs> you know? Sorry. That's why you know so much about music. Yeah. I was like, Shannon knows a lot about music. Yeah. You majored in music. Yeah. I'm, I'm eight credits short of a, of a double major in music because I hated performing, but I loved music theory. I love, I love music. I'm super passionate about it. And I'm a minor in critical studies of race and ethnicity. Like how the, after you put those things together, you know, Hold on. can I ask a question? If I was afraid of performing, but I really like playing the triangle, would that count <laughs> as like performing credits? If I was just like in the back, like bing, no, bing, it like you have not. to play all the percussion. Yes. Okay. So I'm like, I have to do the, the cymbals and the big barrel drum thing. Yes. Like that's what I would be in charge of if I was like that person. Yes. <laughs> you would need to have ra- range on all range. of the percussive instruments. <laughs> I remember this, we're getting off base here, but we're going to get back on base. I promise. I remember my roommate was in doing musical studies and he had a class where he had to pick out what instrument was being played on like the thing. And I was really bad at it. Yeah. But did you have to do things like that where it was like, okay, now tell us the 12 instruments and that, wild card. The difference between an oboe and not an oboe is pretty similar. That wouldn't be hard for me. The hard part was performing. I did not want to be on stage. And I think it's because I was traumatized in my childhood because I was basically a carny kid and I had to sing songs about milk on the back of a pony wagon while cute teenage boys looked at me. <laughs> it was just the most terrible thing. So by the time that I got into college, I was like, well, I love music, but... F you, I'm not performing. I'm not doing this anymore. So, but I guess to go back on point with the book, I think my, I for sure, and I know that there's studies to back this up, my love of music has made me better at math, like all throughout. Like there's connections like Mm -hmm. that that we don't always see on the surface, but that for sure have come to life. Um, And too, like, how do you, again, like, how do you find those generalists that can then be the connectors amongst the specialists? Okay. Speaking of, let's hit the first piece, which is analogical reasoning, which is something we all know, but I don't know that we've ever heard it phrased as analogical reasoning. Mm -hmm. So analogical reasoning or argument by analogy can be defined as a specific way of thinking based on the idea that because two or more similar things are similar in some respects, they're probably also similar in further respect. Basically, if you have an analogy in a different industry or something else that you may have experienced that kind of pertains to what you are working on or what your team is working on, please bring up that analogy because it'll probably help you get through your problem. Yes. So he brings up a point in the book where he was, he was (laughs) doing a study on two different lab groups at the same time. And the one lab group was all specialists and the other one had a range of different people's experiences. And the one lab group had an analogy to some other type of science or something else. And they solved it. Mm -hmm. And the other lab group had no other analogies to anything else because they'd all only worked in one thing. Mm -hmm. And he was like, well, as a researcher, I was told that I couldn't share information between the two, but I really wanted to help this other group bridge their gap because the other, the, the one that had the analogies had figured it out and moved past it, right? Like it was like a nothing to them where the other group was still stuck. And they were stuck because they had no outside analogy to bring in and and push themselves forward. Mm -hmm. So that's the example he goes through. I want to bring up another example that I thought was interesting just to kind of really hone in on the fact that 
the analogy doesn't have to do anything with your industry, with what you're solving, as long as it helps you reframe your situation and think about it in a different way. So got this one from a, a Harvard Business Review article on analogical thinking. So this is... Look at you doing the extra credit homework on this Well, here's book. the thing. They <laughs> refer to themselves in it, so it's kind of dumb. And I want to make a point of that. So you're going to hear me talk about Harvard Business in this Harvard Business Review example of analog- analogical reasoning. So the example is throughout the mid-1990s, Intel, so Intel is like a big uh, processor company, had resisted providing cheap microprocessors for inexpensive PCs. During a 1997 training seminar, however, Intel's top management team learned a lesson about the steel industry from a Harvard Business School professor. <laughs> He's... His example and his lesson was, in the 1970s, upstart mini mills established themselves in the steel business by making cheap concrete reinforcing bars known as rebar. Established players like U.S. Steel let them have the low end of business because they were like, yeah, that's fine. You guys are taking like the entry point. Like, we don't care about that. Like, you can have it. But deeply regretted that decision when the mini mills crept into higher end products. So they were like, we make rebar. We can also make the next thing. We can make the next thing. And they're like, oh, crap. If they're able to do that, then we're going to end up losing the middle part of the market and then maybe the top end of the market. So Intel CEO at the time, Andy Grove, he seized on that steel analogy referring to cheap PCs as digital rebarb. Rebar. And the lesson was clear. Um, He argued if we lose the low end today, we could lose the high end tomorrow. So they then, Intel began to promote its low-end processors aggressively to, to makers and buyers of inexpensive PCs to not lose that piece. Yeah. This makes a lot of sense to me. I use analogies all the time in coaching. Uh, and I, I think it is the thing that helps people like break out of the rut that they are in, in a lot of different ways. What is curious to me to think about f- from the book is just that like sometimes I think, maybe this is my own bias, uh, as a proponent of range, I think analogies are common used in like interpersonal situations, but there is so many ways that analogies can be used to like actually solve technical problems as well. Like I think mm-hmm. about the example in the book where he talks about having to fix an oil spill and them outsourcing it to just or crowdsourcing it basically to any average Joe in America. And this guy talks about an experience of vibrators to help the concrete you know like stay loose and not yeah solidify you know and it's just like that's just through life experience you know like and if you are so busy specializing if the only thing you do every saturday morning is go play golf and you never help a friend pour concrete or you never go diddle battle on the piano or you never go plant a garden i think about all the metaphors that you're losing Mm -hmm. to or analogies god i'm gonna figure out the difference between at the end of this episode but think about all the analogies that you're losing to support you in shifting the kaleidoscope and being able to see it from a different perspective well what's so interesting and i want to hit on this this concrete mixing one again because basically this very highly specialized company had said we got to this problem and we don't know how to solve it nobody can figure it out so we're going to put it out there whoever can solve it will give you i don't know twenty thousand dollars fifty thousand dollars and so a lot of people really like solving those things. So there's websites dedicated to, here's a very highly technical problem that we're going to dumb down and we just need a solution that could work. Mm-hmm. 
And they find a lot of times that the people who submit solutions have either no experience in the field or very tertiary experience in that field, but the solution is coming from a different field. So the idea here was the sludge that comes out of the oil, they want to separate from the water so they can get the oil off and clean it. But they had no way of shaking it to get them separated. That wasn't super expensive, right? They had chemical cleaners they could use. But this guy was like, yeah, I remember one time I was pouring concrete with my friend. (laughs) And I was like, isn't that concrete going to get like solid? And they're like, no, we just literally we stick a pole and it shakes it. And once it does it, it becomes concrete again. He was like, oh, okay, can we do something like that in this thing? And you know what? It worked. And they were like, yeah, we." it was like the cheapest solution that you could possibly have. But none of the guys working on it had ever potentially worked with concrete to know that that was that simple. Yep. I just think those examples are so compelling. The examples and the analogies they provide are very compelling. I think the, the big thing, and the question is like, how do we incorporate this into our work or our own problem solving? I think what what I take away from this is if I'm running into problems and I don't have a way to solve it and the people around me don't have a way to solve it, it's ask people outside of your field. Like, here's the thing we're running into. Do you have any experience with something like this? And if they go, well, I remember this one time, then you're on the right path, right? If they have an example and an analogy to share with you, that may help you solve your problem. And so the thing that I have always thought of and I always push for when thinking about how to build a team is always try and get the people with the most diverse backgrounds because that's going to bring the most varied experience and the most uh, range of analogies to help you push things forward. Yeah. And I think that example in the book of the two science groups, the labs working, like one was highly specialized in the same field and one was very uh, varied in terms of their specialties. The one with the varied specialties was like night and day difference in terms of what they're able to achieve. Yes. Um, and I think to, to your question of like, how do we bring this into real life? So I'm hearing one of your tips is like, uh, ask other people outside of your field for sure. Also ask yourself, like, what does this remind you of? Or who does this remind you of? Like if I'm dealing with a client that's like sticky or a, a client is dealing with a situation that's sticky, asking that question can often like, help us find like, where is the analogy outside of the thing that I am dealing with right here, right now, um, that might then open up some new ways of looking at it. I like that. All right, let's talk about lateral thinking, uh, which I think is also super fascinating. So this is another concept that he hits on in the book. Um, I think we all probably, I don't know, I really like it. I think it, it's an, Yeah, I've always liked it since I started working and doing a lot of work in design thinking, because this is a very design thinking um, concept. But it's really an interesting way to say think outside the box. So lateral thinking is a manner of solving problems using an indirect and creative approach via reasoning that is not immediately obvious. It involves ideas that may not be attainable using only traditional step-by-step logic. Mm -hmm. So... All of that to say, let me ask you, Shannon, some lateral thinking questions. So can you name an ancient invention still in use in most parts of the world that allows people to see through walls? Glass? 
Think one step behind that. <laughs> Go one step behind that. One step behind glass? Yeah. Like, what predates glass? I don't know. Tell me. J- windows. Just holes in walls. Oh, like, just just uh, the, 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 fa- the space in and of itself. The space. <laughs> okay. Okay. I like it. So that's that's a lateral thinking-based question, right? Because you have to kind of think outside the box in that, like, can we see through walls? Well, yeah. You literally just cut a hole in the wall and you can see through it. Yeah. Which I think is interesting. Okay, here's the other one. I don't like it as much, but let's see. Uh, an Australian woman was born in 1948, but only celebrated her 16th birthday quite recently, Shannon. Why? Is she a leap year baby? She's a leap year baby. Yeah. It's <laughs> like this one. The first one I was like, oh, that feels trickier. But that one I was like, oh, is she just like a leap year baby? One of my best friends, her little boy is a leap year baby. So I think the thing with lateral thinking is how do you how do you take yourself out of what would be a normal way of solving the problem and thinking about it from a different perspective? Uh, one of the one of the techniques with lateral thinking is uh, what's our solution? Okay, if that's a solution, how do we work back from that to get to it, right? Mm -hmm. Because we clearly can't just think about how to get to it. So let's start at the end and let's work our way back. Another example, another way of lateral thinking is what's the worst possible way for us to solve this, right? Yeah, I love that. Get that that out there and then then move move past that one to try and find the real solution, right? it's, It's really, I think of it as... How do you really push yourself to come up with a lot of varied solutions to help you hone in on what could be potentially the right solution? Mm -hmm. And so when we do this in design thinking, we always say, well, it's not about the quality. It's about the quantity Mm -hmm. because somewhere in that quantity is going to be the spark that gets us to the right path that's going to lead us to the solution. And so as you're thinking about these things, and, and you've got a problem and you're kind of stuck and you want to think outside the box. Okay, so think about what's the worst way to do it. Think about, okay, if I'm, if I'm, if I've got all the money in the world, how do I solve this problem, right? Like I have, that money is not an issue. How would I solve it? Okay, let's think about the inverse of that. I have no money. How do I solve this with no money, right? Like what's the scrappiest way I can do this? Think about uh, aspirational companies, I think of, I always think of Disney. I love Disney. But like, how would Disney solve this solution, right? Like, what's the, what's the Disney spin to this? Or what's the Google or what's the Amazon spin to this? Like, how would they approach this problem? They're not going to approach it the way that you're thinking about it, right? So it forces you outside of yourself to think about it in a different way. The, the examples he brings in the book, which I think are really fascinating, all have to do with, one of them has to do with Nintendo. And the idea that Nintendo was a, uh, like a gambling card game company. They started out as a, a card company. And then they became, they became industry leaders in video games because <clears throat> they took technology for calculators, mm-hmm. right? Like one of the guys <laughs> who was like a chief uh, engineer or something saw that calculators had really pushed forward. And he saw a guy on a train playing with a calculator. And he's like, that guy's straight up just playing with a calculator. Yeah. Like, and I don't know how many times you can type eight zero zero eight five and really enjoy yourself on this calculator. I don't know what this guy's doing. When he was saying that, I was like, I don't know what this guy's doing. Like, unless he's just writing boobs a bunch, yeah. like, I don't know what he's doing. Yep. And he was like, that's interesting. So he worked with a calculator manufacturer and was like, 
what if we could make a game with this technology? Yes. They're like, this technology is old. Like, you're not pushing, you're not pushing anything new here. He's like, no, I know. And so what they ended up doing was making something called a game and watch, which was like this guy with two hands who's just juggling a ball. And it's like the most basic thing. He also invented the D-pad with this, which is wild to think that like this calculator based game invented the D-pad, which then goes on to be like the most video game synonymous. What the heck is the D-pad? It's the, the, it looks like a cross or a plus sign. Oh. But it's how you move your character. But it was invented literally for this game and watch. Wow. Ended up selling millions and millions of copies. They said that as Nintendo's continued down their path, they always try to hone back in on what are basically outdated technologies that we can use in a unique way in addition to having amazing games yes. for them to play on it, right? Because they talk about the Game Boy coming out. And at same boy the Game Boy came out, which was grayscale. It was two different colors of gray, gray and dark gray. The other handheld systems from Sega, from everybody else, were in color. And they were like, we can't compete with that. And he's like, well, no, it doesn't matter because, one, ours is indestructible. They're like, basically, nothing can break it. And as a child with a Game Boy, nothing could break it. Mm -hmm. Um, But it had the games that you wanted to play on it. And so, yes, the technology was out of date, but they used it in a in an interesting way and had the right games to get people excited about it. And they kept doing that, right? Like the Wii, the technology of the Wii is not that unique or new. Mm -hmm. It just was motion technology that no one had used in a video game system effectively before. And so they had taken outdated technology and used it to really propel themselves forward. And he talks about how the queen even wanted to play the Wii because she was so excited about it. Yes, yes. I think the the other example of that is someone like Steve Jobs working on the iPhone, right? The the idea of touchscreen had existed for a long time, but it was never seen as a functional way of of using it until he put it in the iPhone. But at that point it was outdated technology, and then it became revolutionary. And so the the idea of lateral thinking is think outside the box, how can you use things that may not be cutting edge in their own field anymore Mm -hmm. to to really revolutionize the industry or the place that you're working in yeah love that okay so let's get into tacticals let's get into takeaways um his at the end of the book he gets to his conclusion he goes everybody always wants one sentence of advice they always are asking me one sentence of advice he's like well you just read the book like it's not going to be a summary that i'm gonna give you in one sentence he's like but if i have to give you one sentence My one sentence is, don't feel behind, Mm. right? He talks about Julius Caesar saying, by the time that Alexander the Great was my age, he had conquered the world. Like, what what is there for me to do? Well, Julius Caesar, you end up conquering most of the world and then having people murder you because you're crazy, right? (laughs) Probably because you felt behind and, like, had to outdo him, right? So, like, what he's saying is, don't feel behind because the most successful people are normally generalists who specialize at some point Mm -hmm. once they find their passion. Mm -hmm. They talk about this idea of tiger moms and the idea that when your kid is two, you pick the piano or you pick the violin and that's what they're going to do. And the example he gives in the book is from the book tiger mom. I think probably she'd made both of her kids. What I said, probably yes, that's a book. Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. 
she made both of her kids play the piano or the violin or something at two. And everybody was like, wow, they're amazing. They're so good. Like, it's crazy how talented they are. And they both gave it up because they had no passion for it. And his point was that most people who end up hyper-specializing at an early age, right, 12, 13, 14, it's because they've tried a lot of things, found the thing that they really love, and then really want to invest into it. Yeah. Right? Like, you cannot force a child to be hyper-passionate about something until they decide for themselves that they want to be hyper-passionate. So the don't feel behind, I think, is really important. Let's get into this um, reference back to one of our older episodes. So Herminia Ibarra. What episode did we talk about her on, Shannon? 82, Working Identity, Non-Traditional Ways to Reinvent Your Career. So she talks about, and he talks about her a lot in this book, so it was kind of fun to go back to another book that we had read in the middle of a book that we were both reading. So um, she suggests proactive pursuit of match quality. So really planning experiments. And the idea is how do you continue to try things until you find something that sticks, right? And if that isn't a more generalist approach to life, I don't know what is. Yep. But the, the really cool thing that that connects us to is this idea of Friday night or Saturday morning experiments. So he talks about this guy named Oliver Smithies. And Oliver Smithies would work in a lab Monday through Friday doing regular lab things, I think. I don't, I, they don't think they really talk about what he actually was doing. But let's just assume he used all the equipment properly and did things the right <laughs> way. And then on Saturday, he would basically just do whatever he wanted to. He, they somehow gave him a skeleton key. He would just go scrounging around in this lab yeah. for anything he wanted and would just try things out. Based off of that, Smithies found that they were working on insulin and they were trying to figure out how to get insulin to grow better. And he couldn't figure it out. Nobody could figure out how to make insulin grow better. This wasn't necessarily something he needed to do for his job. It was just something he was intrigued by. And he remembered that his mom would use starch to starch his dad's shirts. And the paste that it made was very interesting. Gelatinous. Uh And he's like, well, maybe maybe that would work. So he went, used a skeleton key, found some starch, and then made this starch gelatinous mixture that worked really well to grow insulin, right? And that pushes that industry forward. But his starch experience had nothing to do with his work experience. And he wouldn't have even done that experiment unless he had been there on a Saturday. And they ended up giving him like something would break. They would be like, all right. Smithies is going to play with that. We'll just leave it for him on Saturday and he'll go tinker with it because that's what he does. Like he tinkers, he tries things that are outside of the norm on Saturdays to the point where they were like, why do you come in Monday through Friday when your breakthroughs are on Saturday? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So the push is do Saturday experiments, like push yourself outside of your comfort zone and do the things that you wouldn't normally do on those Friday nights, Saturday mornings and, and try the things you wouldn't normally try because those are the ones that are going to be revolutionary. So, Rami, what's an experiment you're going to try? Or that you're already trying? I think I want to figure out how to bake things. Yeah. Like, I should know how to bake things because baking is basically science. I'm a terrible baker, Uh which isn't to say I was a good scientist. (laughs) And maybe the two correlate. But I would really like to be a good baker because the science of it should make it black and white-ish-ish. But maybe that's why you don't enjoy it. I think so. I really like cooking, but it's much more 
flexible. cooking to me is jazz and baking is classical. Mm-hmm. And I should, I should be able to go from jazz to classical based on your music knowledge and what he told us in this book. But maybe I don't want to. I don't know. Yeah. But if it's calling to you honoring that. Yeah. Are you going to, do you have a Saturday morning experiment, Shannon? I am newly interested. I wouldn't say obsessed yet. I'm newly interested in cinematography. I'm just fascinated by it. And so last night I started watching a masterclass on, I don't even remember his name because I wasn't too worried about who he was as a person, but I was just more interested in like what wisdom he had to share from the lens of a cinematographer. So anyways, that's like my new little passion project of curiosity and learning. He also has a podcast that is fascinating, Shannon. You'll like it. Who? The masterclass guy. Oh, did you watch his masterclass? No, but I know who you're talking about. Warner, Herner, something. I don't know. Oh, you, you're doing the Warner Herzog one? Yes. Oh, he is fascinating. I'm he is feeling fascinating. That way. I was thinking maybe this is going to be a Workplace Hogs episode, but it's like six hours worth of content. So it's going to take me some time to work through it. I like that. Okay, I'm going to shoot you some movie recommendations in terms of cinematography that I think you'll like. All right. But my next piece is the idea of... Uh, approaching your own personal voyage in projects like Michelangelo when he approached a block of marble. So he was always willing to learn and adjust as he went and even being willing to abandon a previous goal and change directions entirely should the need arise. So the funny thing with Michelangelo is we have, we have masterworks from him. We have uh, sculptures in marble and we have obviously paintings um, and ceilings that he's done. But what's interesting is we have a lot more abandoned pieces from him than finished pieces Mm. because he always said the block of marble is a figure trying to get out. I just need to help it get out. I think sometimes he would get there and be like, I can't help this one get out. Like that's, I can't do that. Mm -hmm. So then he would abandon it. And I think that that idea of not being tied to the, the sunk cost of I bought this marble I mean, more traditionally, someone bought me this marble because they wanted me to make them a statue. <laughs> and I now have to do this because I'm already halfway through. I think being willing to abandon it at that point is a very difficult thing. And I think being more willing to abandon those things, I think, will help push you much more forward in life yeah and and maybe shifting perspective to say this isn't a sunk cost because everything that helps me develop range is ultimately going to support me in being able to practice things like analogical thinking and lateral thinking and all that good stuff yes did we talk about this in a previous episode chin i think maybe so so two episodes are coming to mind from here one is like taking us back to the beginning leonardo da vinci that episode 11 that we did on like how he approached things, like how he approached like uh-huh. his own curiosity comes to mind is something that maybe folks would want to refer back to. And then I think they talk about sunk cost in uh, episode 58 and decisive and in, in decision-making, they say to also watch out for sunk cost because it can uh, attach us to a form of reasoning. That's just maybe not logical. Like it just needs to die. It's time to set it aside. I like it. Uh, and then the last thing is really push yourself to use analogical reasoning and lateral thinking. I think pushing yourself outside your own boxes and trying to get analogies to things that can help you and your team progress forward, I think, are really important. So let's let's do a quick recap here. So we talked about generalists. 
We talked about specialists. We talked about analogical reasoning. We talked about lateral thinking. We talked about not feeling behind. We talked about Saturday morning experiments. We talked about Michelangelo and sunk costs. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the range. <laughs> that's the range that we had this episode. With that, we'd love for you to join in the conversation in Workplace Hugs. Tell us, do you think you're a generalist or do you think you're a specialist? And more importantly, what do you want to be? Because sometimes maybe you don't want to be the thing that you are. Uh, with that, I've been Shannon. I've been Rami and this has been Workplace Hugs. <laughs>